Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Yakir Englander, your host today. Today we will speak with Michael Manekin, who wrote the book In the Dawn of Redemption, Ethics and Tradition in a Time of Power. Michael argues that modern Jewish nationalism, widespread today among secular as well as religious Israeli Jews, is incompatible with traditional Jewish ethics. Manekin, an Orthodox religious Jew and anti-occupation activist, draws on traditional texts as well as his own family history in an attempt to reconcile a religious ethical system created in the diaspora with the political reality of a modern nation state. He argues that Jewish ethics, grounded in a long-time religious tradition, can fuel and guide critically-minded, politically-engaged citizens. Specifically, Manekin argues that the Jewish tradition denounces a desire for power and control, as well as ideologies of ethnic superiority. The author, Michael Manekin, our guest, is a director of the Alliance Fellowship Program, a network of Arab and Jewish progressive leaders in Israel. Before running the Alliance, Michael served as the director of Molad, a non-partisan progressive think tank in Jerusalem, focused on demographic change in Israel. Prior to that, Michael was the executive director of Breaking the Silence, an Israeli military veterans group focused on educating the public as to the results of military control of the West Bank and Gaza. He lives in Jerusalem with his wife, Yael, and their children, Ruth, Sarai, and Noach. Michael, thank you so much for coming to the new book. Thank you. So, Ma, your book starts with a very personal confession. Um, you start with a story about your military service and um, very interesting human moment, right? It's like event of a moment. It's not about what you did as a 
soldier, but what you did as a Michael, as a Jew, with your Jewish values, and something happened to you in a moment, very intimate, personal moment in your in your service as the IDF. And I wonder if you can start there a little bit um, about what happened and why it shaked you so much. And also, why did you choose to start the book with that moment, with a personal story? Um, okay. <laughs> so, um, yeah, well, the, the book begins indeed with um, a reflection of a moment I had in the military service. I served uh, for four years uh, in the military, which is an extra time. I signed on extra as an officer and I served in the infantry uh, during the second intifada. Um, I begin the Which book is the second Palestinian rebel, right? Yes, or... it's uh, right. We're talking about, uh, I, I mean, I served from 1998 till 2002. And this is in, I, I guess, sometime in, in 2000 or 2001. Um, in the Nabulus area, um, we were stationed to take a hold of a house, which is a common procedure in the military. Uh, you take over a house because those are usually of Palestinians. Uh, those are, and th those houses become sort of makeshift bases and lookout points. Uh, with the family living nearby or next door, in this case, they were next door. Um, the story I tell is of a, a moment where I went out of the house uh, to relieve myself, to go to the bathroom. Uh, and uh, it's odd to talk about it. But as, I, <laughs> as, uh, as I basically, as I took down my pants, um, uh, suddenly I noticed there was um, the owner of the house was an elderly woman who was standing um, in front of me. Uh, and there wasn't a, there wasn't a vocal interaction between us, uh, but there was a look, which I remember as a look of, um, uh, sort of disgust towards me. Um, uh, yeah. Um, in this, in the book, I, I say how you know I I'm I'm Orthodox. I wear a kippah, but uh, it was under a helmet. So basically, I'm the only one who knows that I'm um, that I'm a religious individual. But I felt um, there's a phrase um, in Hebrew or or, or a Jewish phrase, which is sort of desecration. Of naming of God, and uh, I felt that that's what I was doing—that I was desecrating um, His name—and um, and that moment uh, for me is a moment uh, when I when I look back when when really the question of sort of my my religious up, upbringing and my behavior how does that mesh or how does that interact with questions of, um, of power and sometimes of grotesque uh, power. Um, yeah, it's, which is interesting. I actually ran once an organization called Breaking the Silence, which collects testimonies. And you were right to note that that's not a testimony that I would say in the organization. It's not a military mm. story. It's not something which, uh, which is problematic um, in terms of rules of engagement or in terms of international law, but uh, that story, I think, was significant for me uh, because there's something about sort of how the body, uh, how how the body behaves, in um, and and how the body is 
seen or and how the body sees its uh, reality, uh, which to me was very striking. Uh, the book is really um, an attempt to do, I guess, virtue ethics or Jewish virtue ethics uh, in a time of power or a, per- a very personal attempt. And, you know, a lot of times we think about virtue ethics as something which is uh, very much um, uh, cognitive, but I, I think it's much deeper than that. Uh, it's the way it's the way you behave as a person, and uh, and I think that's how I, I think that's a very I, I'm maybe other religions as well, but it's also a very Jewish way of looking at things mm. um, in terms of you know thinking about every aspect of your being, being how you speak, how your body behaves, how your mind behaves, and how it interacts. So it was a good. Um, I thought it was it, it 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 was a good sort of doorway yeah. into my thinking when I was yes. writing the book. Uh, you know, I, my, and Michael, I love that there is such an interesting connection in inside the Jewish tradition between the moments when we are naked or when we are in a very intimate places, and then the images that come to us. There is a famous. Um, in, in classical Jewish text about Joseph, that when he almost had intimate relationship um, with the Egyptian woman, he had the image of his father, Jacob, who was far, far away in, in, in Canaan, in Israel. And you also have all the time walk with you in the book, the image of your Saba, of your grandpa, um, Yechiel, um, Michael, that I guess um, your name is coming from. And yeah. he's coming in 1949. And there is something between attention between him as a dreamer, right? As a Zionist, Orthodox dreamer who pray for 2000 years. If I would take him as an image for the Jew in, in you know, in, in Europe, and he prayed to come to Jerusalem. And then he's coming. And yeah. I love that you capture the moments on the between, like when he's on the boat, when he's just having the first steps. And then we have you, Michael, the new generation, you know, of the Israelis, the Sabar, the native, who is coming and you have the sovereignty. Can you yeah. share a little bit about this tension? Sure. I mean, so, so I write in the book, I, did, I didn't know him, and um, uh, I know him through stories of my mother. Um, but we did find uh, the, the stories which I tell of him, most of them are, are him uh, speaking or him writing, because we found uh, letters, uh, I guess drafts of letters, which he wrote really, you know, when he was on the boat mm-hmm. uh, to Israel, uh, when he was a couple of weeks in. Um, so, and and whenever, and, and, and I am named after him, and 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 he was writing this when he was, you know, my age and in, in 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 sort of a similar family circumstance, but also so different uh, in terms of his life experiences. I mean, he was coming from a refugee camp, uh, um, a displaced persons camp after, you know, um, after the Holocaust. And and it's true that he was a Zionist, but I think it's a type of Zionism which is uh, which we usually don't think about. He was not. Um, uh, trying to build a new Jew. Uh, he was not, um, I think, very interested in sort of that national, that secular nationalist 
version of Zionism, which is, you know, the hegemonic version of Zionism. Uh, his Zionism, I mean, at some point he compares his friends um, from the refugee camp moved to the U.S., which he calls uh, the young woman, uh, as opposed mm-hmm. to uh, Israel, which is the old mother, which is which is usually not the way that Zionists talk about Israel. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, I mean, he, I think he was very happy that he moved here, but also he his idealized version of the state didn't really work with uh, with what ended up being here. And I write quite a bit about that as well. And I think he's constantly wrestling between, I mean, I read him as constantly wrestling between his incredible excitement uh, to be part of this, you know, religious historical process, but also the fact that the reality isn't that way. And what I'm trying uh, what I was trying to do and what I, I think I'm still trying to do is try to tap into uh, his understanding of Jewish ethics, because I think a lot of that has been um, forgotten or a lot. And, and it's been forgotten because it doesn't really work. Um, now, my book. Can you say a little bit about what does it mean that it doesn't really work? Yeah, sure. So, so I was about to say, I mean, I'm not. I think there there are there there are there is writing which is sort of a negation of the Israeli project, which is you know sort of diasporist. You know, um, there was an ethics of diaspora, which was uh, one which was learned and one which was more um, uh, timid, one which uh, was more merciful, and that doesn't coincide at all with Israel, and therefore you know we shouldn't be part of this project. And I'm not exactly going in the route in that book because. I, you know, I grew up here. I have a, a tremendous amount of empathy to that tradition, but I, I can't, it, it makes no sense for me to negate, nor, nor do I want to both negate the Israeli, you know, project or romanticize too much mm-hmm. uh, the diasporist one. And um, my, my feeling was that it can't be that there is no way to tap into um, the, uh, the ethos of, you know, the diasporist, let's call it ethos, without negating uh, Israel. So the question for me is, how do I live as a Jew who's interested in continuing the tradition of my, you know, Eastern European family while still living in this country and recognizing the tremendous amount of uh, power and privilege and also the abuse of power and privilege uh, that Israeli Jews have here? Um, and 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 part of that for me meant not asking questions, which I don't feel I have much to offer, frankly, about sort of how should a Jewish state behave. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I for I, I forgo that question from the get go. I'm not interested in how the Jewish state should behave because uh, a, a state should behave like a state, <laughs> um, yes. democratic. I'm interested in how a Jew should behave in any state. In this case, how a Jew should behave in Israel. So, it, my my the the way for me to connect with the tradition that I am happily part of is to not try to transplant that tradition into the national ethos, but rather to build my you know my personal and my communal ethos and have a conversation, sometimes positive and sometimes negative, with the state. Um, yeah, so yeah. I, I, yeah. 
So thank you, thank you so much. So yeah. I, I, be, I, what I would love to do now is to to walk a few steps that I I saw in your book, and I think that the first step is um, that you go back to some of the traditions or some of the text in the Jewish tradition, um, who speak about which kind of behavior is it we um, God or the, the Jewish culture, the Jewish tradition, religion, expect from the Jew. And then you, for example, you say that in order to mimic the divine, in order to walk as a divine, that the, the Jewish classical text says that we need to walk with the actions of the divine, right? As the divine is merc merciful, yeah. we need to be merciful. And I, I would love if you can say a few words about that for listeners who are less um, you know, experienced with Jewish text. And also I wonder if you really think that these are the majority or the main voice in, in, uh, in the Jewish tradition, or you think that <laughs> there are also others that that includes some, maybe some more um, harshness or power inside it? Sure. I mean, so maybe I'll, I'll answer the second part first, Thank which you. will make it easier to, to answer. The <laughs> yes, please, please. Um, no, so first of all, of course, this is one stream of tradition of Jewish thought. And, uh, and, and I'm aware of that in the book as well, that I'm, you know, I'm, I, and I think any traditional individual uh, whether wh whether he's critical or not, ultimately chooses a version of uh, of the tradition which makes sense um, it, to his or her upbringing. Um, you know, and obviously I do that. I think you know religious Zionism definitely does that, and I show right. it in the book, ultra orthodox Jewry, and so on. I don't think anybody can run away from it. The question is if you're aware that that's what you're doing or not. Um, in my case, what I was particularly drawn to is a, um, I would say, a stream of Jewish tradition, uh, which I do think is 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 connected throughout history, which is a stream of virtue ethical literature, uh, what's called Safrut Musar um, in uh, in Hebrew, um, you know, and we have that tradition from uh, um, uh, from um, um, Mishnaic times or from 2000 years ago up right. until today, where you have books which are dedicated to the behavior of the individual um, or ethical texts, which are which are dedicated to the behavior of the individual. And I would say even within that, I think there's a stream of what can be called uh, Hasidic virtue ethics, uh, Hasidic, not in the sense of the Hasidic movement, which we know today, uh, which is a sort of sociological phenomenon but Hasidic in the verge of a book, a, a, a books of pietists. Yes. And just to hammer the point in where uh, these, this is only one stream of tradition, I think most of what pietistics, pietistic books do is actually have arguments with other Jews. So, um, I, I, you know, if you read like uh, the books of the German pietists in the Middle Ages, most of their, most of their back and forth and most of their anger is at the majority of the Jewish community when they're very aware that they're, in the minority, and those books are, are for me, you know, very powerful. Uh, so too, you know, Egyptian pietists or or other books which I allude to um, in the book. Um, so so yeah, so I do choose a version of that, 
there is there is definitely an element in all of these books of um, of um, mimicking the behavior of God. Yeah. Ultimately, I would say it's both of God and of our of our forefathers. Ultimately, there are ideal types, whether it's God or whether it's you know famous rabbis, or in my case, my idealized grandfather. So I was very aware that that's in the position which I was putting him into in the book, which is asking, you know, let, let's see how they behave and how do we behave in that way? Um, I think you're right to point out to, uh, that a lot of it is not only just in terms of how you think or how you um, feel, but a lot of it is about action. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of it is understanding um, uh, what do you actually do? uh on you know on the ground um in the book i talk quite a lot about uh which i guess in, in a way is very sort of like conservative in the small small c um uh, uh the importance of you know mitzvot or commandments or understanding their dynamics with ethics uh and understanding what the, how that relates to power uh so you know uh in my case the question is if I'm a if I'm a citizen or I'm a soldier, so there are those laws which are given to me uh, by the states or you, those universalists un, universalist understandings. But there's also a, another set of traditions and laws which I need to adhere to. And if they don't work within you know state, I actually need to be in conflict with the state. Uh, so that's in terms of those virtues. Maybe I would add into that that I think those virtues and those actions don't work if there's an overarching story or telos. And for me, uh, the question of, you know, diaspora and redemption and what does it mean? What does redemption mean uh, in the Jewish context and in the Israeli context is very significant. I think a lot of Jewish thought, most Jewish thought regarding Israel sees Israel as an end to diaspora, which I think is theologically very problematic. Meaning from my, you know, religious understanding, I'm very much still within, in the diaspora uh, because, you know, we're still living in what's called in, uh, in rabbinic tradition, this world and not the next world. Yeah, fascinating. So I just want to make sure that I understand you say it's not that you want to go back to the diaspora, but you want to, to keep the dialogue or what we will say in Aramaic, the chavruta, the learning together with the diaspora where maybe Israel is a state, as a souvenir with sovereignty, they need to make um, decisions, you know, yeah. as, a, as a state, but we must continue the dialogue. And, and then in the book, you do two more steps, which were fascinating for me. One, and, and I would love if you can share some more about that. One, you said that David Ben-Gurion, as an example, the first prime minister of Israel, but who also had a deep ideology around what he did, he took the element of religion and he translated it to nationalism, if I understood. But then you said there is one more step, which is the role of the Zionist orthodoxy in Israel, and mostly after M67, where they bring nationalism with power and religion together. So I wonder if you can walk us a little bit there. Sure. So, I mean, and this relates to to the previous point because, um, 
uh, and, and maybe this is less understood outside of the country, diaspora is a negative term in Israel. Um, the, you know, diasporic ethics are considered negative. Uh, and that makes it very hard to be a traditional Jew. So I think what happened in sort of mainstream, you know, uh, Zionism, particularly post-48, is that there was both a rebellion against uh, the traditional Jewish world, but there was also an attempt to um, confiscate the language of, um, of, of traditional Jewry and use it uh, for national purposes. And you see that everywhere, even today. I mean, even if you look at our flag, the Israeli flag is a secularized um, uh, um, nationalist version of the talit, of the prayer shawl mm. that we wear. So basically, or, you know, the Knesset, our parliament, Knesset is a Jewish term. Uh, the fact that Jerusalem is the capital, everything is an attempt to take uh, a traditional discourse uh, and and both rebel against it, but also to take hold of it and use it for um, uh, for nationalist purposes. Um, so it's not and, and and make that I, I wouldn't say make the state God, but make the people God. Um, and I think sadly, and over time, religious Jewry, religious Zionism, really fell into this mode of thinking. First, apologetically, meaning uh, religious Zionist rabbis, and I read about this in the book, um, you know, th they weren't the ones deciding um, to go out into, you know, all of these military um, incursions uh, of Israel, but they were the ones explaining afterwards in retrospect why this was done according to Jewish law, uh, even if it wasn't. Uh, and over time, they became sort of the most vocal coherent voices of the nationalization of religion. So it's not only that, you know, a lot of times if you read, definitely in the last couple of years, you'll read about Israel becoming more religious uh, in the terminology and the politics. But I think there's another part for that, which is more frustrating for me as a religious individual, which is the nationalization of religion. So it's not only the, you know, religification of nationalism, but the nationalization of religion and what I think is needed for me, I guess, uh, is, is a separation of church and state in the deeper sense, which is to understand that religion needs to, to work or the Jewish religion needs to work autonomously uh, from the state in order to allow itself to continue putting you know, God uh, in the center and not the people or the state. Um, yeah. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. And, and, and I will say that the God that the Jewish tradition created, which is very different, I think, than the God of the Bible, which is sometimes very angry and um, sometimes, you know, um, has a lot of anger and also wish to revenge. But I think that maybe what you speak more is about the translation or is a dialogue or is a covenant of Jewish history with the divine, which is a divine which is much more um, feminine, sensitive? Is it right to yes. say it like that? Yeah, um, I, yeah, um, definitely both of those. Um, I, I think sensitive is a really powerful word, <laughs> uh, so thank you. Um, I would also say um, two attitudes which can seem contradictory. One is um, responsible, but the other one is very hesitant. Mm. Uh, so it's it's something which is, I, I mean, I, I you know demands um, um, d- because because the religion demands action, so it demands you know responsibility and a keen awareness of your surroundings surroundings, but also demands like a form of um, you know like a like a second thought, <laughs> you know, like oh, I'm not sure. There's that attitude which I think is so, you know, and definitely, you know, we're living through this very populist period, which I think is defined, more than it's defined by aggression, it's defined by the demand to, const- to not think, to just run into uh, action which is being demanded from you, which I think is the counter of the religious attitude which I was brought up with, which is, you know, can I have a second opinion? So, I'll, if, if I give an example, in a way, if, if, if somebody asks me if I'm a Zionist um, and I hesitate before I answer, that's already perceived as problematic. So, so it, it, it might maybe even more so than if I would say that I wasn't. Sort of like that, that minute where somebody asks you a question and you say, I, I want to I think about where I am on this or somebody demands you for an action. I think that's very much part of, um, uh, you know, uh, our ethical tradition, and I think something which is very missing from today's f- from today's world, definitely in Israel, and I imagine in other places as well. Fascinating. Think, thinking again, like to stop as a country, you know, and to reflect about our decisions. Yeah. Um, Michael, I wonder, you know, one of the gifts of speaking with the author <laughs> is that we can go a little <laughs> bit um, beyond the book. And I had two questions that uh, came to me as I was reading this book. Um, you, you, you know, the traditions that you mentioned um, um, about the, the Jews in the, um, before, before um, when they live in Europe, in that example. Um, I wonder, how do you see the ultra-Orthodox community in Israel? Because in a way, they are one of the groups that keep reading this text in a way, in a way, I know that we yeah. all choose the text. 
And I just wonder what you see there, because in a way they never sign on the paper to be Zionist. Um, they look at themselves a little bit different, but also they are part or becoming more part of the of the state. And also, so this will be one question, and I wonder what is the dialogue that you have with them. And the second question is, I, I'm thinking a lot about the diaspora Jews today, like, um, you know, the second biggest or um, the equivalent to Israel about the number of Jews is in North America. And I wonder which kind of dialogue you wish Israel would have with American Judaism. Maybe we could share the roles and we could study from each other, which is something that doesn't really happen. And I just wonder where you are with these two questions. Um, so first, I, I'm, I'm happy in ha of how you posed the question, because there are two issues which I think are, are, are maybe oddly not in the book. <laughs> um, and I think that, that's primarily sort of a stylistic choice, I guess. I mean, I felt that I needed to keep focus mm -hmm. on, you know, the traditions of the community around, but, but obviously uh, those two communities, which, which appear to some extent, uh, but not that much in the, in the book, uh, are, are obviously need um, uh, dialogue with, especially, I guess, the theology. I would say in, in terms of the, in, in terms of the ultra-Orthodox community in Israel, I, first, it, it's worth saying that they made a bunch of other choices uh, regarding modernity in general, which makes their option less relevant in terms of how I was brought up. So it's not only a question of nationalism, it's all, also a question of ultra-Orthodox, you know, post-World War II response to modernity, modernity primarily closing themselves off from the world. Um, I would say particularly in terms of their intellectual interest in things which are happening outside of the community, which I think is a very, um, not, you, you know, it's a very, it's a very new choice and one which I don't think, I, I don't think that reflects Jewish tradition at all. I, I mean, there isn't one ethic, virtue ethics book uh, in the history, you know, that, that I'm reading uh, that wasn't directly influenced from uh, religions around it, from its surroundings, you know, uh, the son of, you know, um, um, Avram Maimon from the Egyptian pietist was, you know, learning from Sufis and, and German pietist, pietists were learning from, uh, from, you know, Christians and, and so on and so forth, and very, very, you know, blatantly so. Uh, so in a way, ultra-Orthodox community isn't a re relevant option, not because of their choices they made on Zionism, but because of their choices they made in their conversation with the world in general. I would also add that I think what we're seeing today in Israel is that because they haven't been engaged uh, in the last 30 or 40 years intellectually uh, or theologically with giving answers on questions of power. So now when a lot, when thousands and thousands of young ultra-Orthodox uh, Jews are becoming more Israelis or opening the gates of the ultra-Orthodox community, they're becoming very militantly right-wing. Uh, so if you look at sort of, you know, the books which I'm interested in uh, around 1948, which are coming from sort of the ultra-Orthodox leadership, pe people like Rav Yitzhak Breuer uh, and other leaders yeah. who are giving real smart theological responses to Zionism, 
they don't exist not 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 in the secular ethos, but also not in the ultra orthodox ethos. So, uh, my frustration, I would say, with ultra orthodoxy is not that it chose differently, but rather that it chose not to engage um, openly and feel and theologically and intellectually, and it basically allows now free reign of the state uh, to take control. What will happen with ultra-Orthodoxy in you know, the next 20, 30 years, I don't know, uh, but I think uh, there's, a, there's, there's, a missing, there's something missing there, which is a more open conversation on power, which hasn't existed in ultra-Orthodox communities, to the best of my knowledge, at least mainstream Orthodox, uh, ultra-Orthodox for a while. Regarding you know, so-called diaspora jury and so-called, because again, I think we're all in different types of diasporas, Ultimately, I think this is about the recognition of, um, of, of Jewish text and the history of Jewish text as one which we are um, commanded to, you know, every de- denomination can have its own understanding of what that means, uh, but one which is our communal language. I feel um, very comfortable having, you know, religious conversation with anybody around, with any Jew, Jew around the world who's interested and who has, who's educated on Jewish texts. Um, it's also, I wrote this book about Israel, but I think, you know, American Jewry also needs to have a reckoning with power. It's a different type of power, maybe more uh, financial, uh, consumerist, and, and so on and so forth. But I think a lot of the themes that I touch on in the Israeli context uh, should be relevant in other, in other areas to American Jewry or, you know, European Jewry or, or other groups. Um, so that's maybe another answer. And maybe lastly, I would say that there is, yeah, there is a, a um, national feeling, which I, I know is not in mode today to say, but, um, but, but, it, but Judaism is very much about nation and very much about the, those distinctions between our community and other communities. And that can be taken and is, a lot of times taken to very negative places, but also something which I think is natural. And I feel, you know, when I go um, to the U.S., I, I feel very, and, and maybe I'll say my father's American. I, I grew up a bit in the U.S. as well. I, I have extended family there, but I also feel very comfortable in any synagogue anywhere around the world. I feel home and I, I feel at home when I go to that library. Um, and I think that's a very powerful thing. I think that something that came to me, you know, also as I was reading the book is that there is, in addition to everything that you mentioned, there is maybe some loss of the engagement between Jews and books. Yes, yes, for sure. Um, and also, the, you know, it's, it's the library is never ending which is something which is which is so exciting you know that yeah. uh that because also books get lost and that get found again um and i think that's very there's something also there which i find very you know cuz uh, in israel about the book i get asked quite a bit about you know but who are, who are you writing this for they're like maybe 10 you know mm-hmm. 10 maybe you know uh religious you know folks who are sort of like very committed to that probably a bit more but I'm very much in minority in my own community, but it, that's only if you look at you look at Jewish text or you know horizontally. <laughs> I mean, we're there are books which which we read today, which are part of our tradition, 
which weren't very popular when they came out, but there's this, there's another sphere even of time uh, and text, which allows you to come back to options uh, which aren't necessarily relevant at some point and then are relevant again at other points. And I think that's a very, that's something which is very fat powerful about community and about family, uh, that there is a lineage which you can connect to on, on, on various different levels. I love it. I love it. <laughs> it's like the books that we carry with ourselves in orders that maybe our grandchildren will be able to engage with them. Yeah. And, and, and that's, and for me, that, that's why it was important to reconnect with uh, my grandfather's texts, in this case, it's letters, because that's also a tradition which was wiped out, I think, of Israeli consciousness, this Eastern European um, sort of, you know, Jews who got here. Uh, and there were a couple of tens of thousands of them, but they weren't, and, and they weren't opposed to the Zionist project, but they weren't part of it necessarily. And when, and when they did arrive here, they were considered some sort of relic of the past, which was meant to disappear at some point. Uh, and their language all but disappeared, uh, you know, in mainstream uh, culture, I'm talking about, you know, Yiddish, uh, and their, you know, their political ethos disappeared. Um, and, and it's important for me to reconnect with them. Yeah. You know, one of the projects that we are doing that I'm doing in my work with the Israeli community who lives in in United States is that we are doing a lot of storytelling. And the fascinating thing is that many of the people have stories about their grandparents, you know, from the Middle East and from North Africa, and that there is um, grieving about the Arab, the Jewish Arabic that was lost and so much knowledge that in a way, because of the project to create a state and to unite us um, all together, there was also maybe, maybe a need or maybe a force to forget what happened before. And yeah. I think that there is a very beautiful today return to the multiply um, colors, and languages and smells that are coming back. For sure. And that's definitely the case in Israel. And one of the things that excites me most about the book is that I get to hear without asking about a lot of people's grandparents, <laughs> meaning, yeah. you know, and, and it could be, you know, uh, folks who are coming from Middle Eastern backgrounds or from Ethiopian backgrounds or from Eastern European backgrounds. But suddenly there is a, there's, and, th and that's one of the frustrations here, because I think when, and I read in the, this in the book, is that when, when if, you, if you'll ask an Israeli uh, to close their eyes and to imagine a religious Jew, they'll probably, unless they're of that themselves, they'll probably imagine a negative stereotype. But if you ask them to imagine their great-grandparents, who are also religious Jews, they'll imagine positive stereotypes. So something there... Uh, is a really um, depressing disconnect. And in a way, I think the most sort of religious <laughs> sort of response to what, you know, in, in our conversation is that I really wanted to present uh, a religious or traditional alternative, which people could feel um, proud of. It's not necessarily about um, trying to convince people 
that my tradition is the right tradition, but rather to present a compelling religious alternative, which can be perceived as authentic and positive. And I think that's also the role of a religious individual, definitely in modern times when we're in the minority, is to present yourself as a compelling alternative to what we see around and something which is very lost, I think, in Israeli tradition. And also, I think there is a thirst for it among not only among religious people or maybe even not specifically among religious people, but among people, you know, who have who have their own communal traditions that don't mesh with with what they see today. Yes. Yes, and I think a lot about the music and the prayers and all the projects sure. that are happening today. Um, I want to go to my last part, of the, the last part of the interview, and I want to be um, more concrete and to take, um, if it's okay with you, one example from one of the chapters that um, you focus, which is about Kibia. Yes. Um, because I think it's a fascinating example where you can see the different choices of different Jewish leaders, uh, Israeli leaders in that time. So Kibia, um, we speak about the first years of the state of Israel, right? Yeah. Um, and there is uh, what we call Fedayun, which are Palestinians who come into Israel and hurting Israelis. They shoot in them and hurt. And yeah. the IDF, which was in a very hard place at that time, it's not the IDF that we are aware today, um, try to do something about the sovereignty of the country. Yes. And and here I will give it to you. Lead us in, 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 <laughs> so, in, in right. so, because here so, starts the narratives, right? Yeah, so Kibia is a Palestinian village uh, right beyond the border. I mean, today it's under Israeli control because it's in the West Bank, but it's right beyond uh, what's called the Green Line, which is you know the internationally recognized border of Israel. Um, Palestinians who, I, I, I'm not even, I, if, if I remember correctly, I think it's Jordanians, uh, not Palestinians, uh, come to Israel one night and um, commit a terrorist attack. They kill a woman and her son. Um, and uh, that Israel um, uh, creates this method through a unit, we're not, we won't get too much into it, of reprisal attacks. Uh, and then it's, it's, it's unclear exactly what happens uh, in terms of who ordered what, but ultimately uh, almost 70 primarily women and Palestinian women and children are killed uh, by an Israeli unit uh, as retribution. Um, there are, you know, as this happens, it, it's, it's, a, it's, an, it's an outcry in the world. And because this is one of the first cases post um, 1948, post the war of 1948, because this is one of the first cases where we have a very um, uh, public uh, display of uh, what is, you know, can I think be easily perceived as abuse of force. There, you, there are a lot of different responses out there to what, is it, what does it mean that Jews are committing this type of act of, of violence? And what I look into is are, are four different responses. Uh, the first is to look at how, you know, Ben-Gurion and the military behaved and what they said. I look into religious Zionist responsa, uh, how religious Zionism, you know, and again, should be mentioned, had nothing to do with the actual action, but did support it in retrospect and explain how it actually fits in with 
you know, traditional Israeli law. Um, there is a very famous response of uh, Yeshayahu Leibovitch, who was an Israeli, um, uh, uh, well, a lot of things, but also an Israeli political theologian uh, who, who talks about uh, the dangers of uh, holiness and, and power, of using holiness in the sense of power. And maybe the last response, which is the only non-Israeli response, but definitely a Jewish response, which I use is a beautiful poem by an incredible poet, uh, Jacob Gladstein, uh, who writes about Kibia as being the proof, I mean, the way I read that poem, uh, Kibia as being the proof that nationalism and, and, and Judaism just don't work uh, together in, in one tradition, uh, basic, uh, prim- you know, the Jewish tradition, the traditional tradition, the diasporas tradition, basically uh, disappears and allows Israel to take charge. And I look at all four of those examples because uh, all four of those responses, because all of those responses in a way are interesting to me to some extent, but also um, are missing. I very much identify with the Gladstein to make, to make a long story short, I very much identify with the Gladstein response except for one problem, which is that I live here. And just saying, well, I'm not going to be part of this is really not a moral or responsible option. And for me, that opens the door uh, to trying to figure out how do, I, how, how do I basically work in, let's say, a Gladstein framework, uh, but also as, a, as an involved Israeli. Um, and also worth mentioning that the, the classic liberal response is by Leibovitch, who basically says, let's take religion out of the public sphere altogether, which is something which I was raised on, to be honest. And I think a lot of religious, uh, liberally inclined religious people in this country are raised on, something that I felt was very significant for me in the past, but but, but a response which I find um, less compelling for me as time goes by. I think one of the reasons why there isn't a compelling religious left response in this country is because of voices, such dominant voices like Leibovitch, which we were all raised on, which basically tell us, don't use your tradition anywhere out of the synagogue um, because it's dangerous. And then we have these beautiful traditions, which can actually be very powerful and are supposed to guide us in every aspect of our lives, but we're sort of theologically trained to not use them. Any, any, any attempt to use religion in the public sphere is frowned on, you know, by liberal and, uh, and progressive forces as well, which, which, which I think is problematic and makes Israel a, a problematic case. I mean, in most countries you have, you know, religious pro-equality voices. And in Israel, those voices are less there. And part of that, I think, is because of this tradition where, that we're not allowed to use that that voice in the public sphere. Uh, So in a way, this book is both a continuation of the Leibovitch model, but also an attempt to challenge it, you know, obviously with love and with a lot of respect, Mm -hmm. but to also challenge the, I think, the faults of that tradition, which don't allow a a public voice uh, for our beautiful tradition. I wonder, Michael, maybe... Today, the music is the place that starts, we can start hearing these voices because there is something I feel in the cultural music um, 
I don't know, like voices in Israel and their relationship between Palestinians who are Israeli, like Israeli citizens and, and Arabs and Muslim and Jewish, mostly in Jerusalem, that maybe something will change, um, is changing there? Yeah, uh, first of all, for sure. And I'm definitely sort of very uh, connected personally to that world. I think, uh, you know, I'm in my in my day to day life. I'm I'm a I'm I'm not an academic. I'm not. I don't, these aren't issues. I'm a political activist, but I've always viewed sort of my activism as another form of 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 culture or another form of of you know the arts. Yeah. Uh, I, I and definitely definitely in terms of liturgy, in terms of musical music, a lot of things happening. Primarily, I would say, um, and sometimes I look at somebody from an Eastern European tradition. Sometimes I even look with a bit of um, envy at what's coming out of beautiful works coming from Middle Eastern communities and from young voices uh, from Middle Eastern. A lot of a lot of my friends uh, who are really reconnecting to uh, various aspects of uh, of our collective um, past, uh, primarily through music, also other arts. Uh, and for sure, I think all of that is an attempt to find communal beauty which is not aggressive. Um, and I think there's something there which is very um, compelling uh, to me uh, and something which is, um, as, as you suggest, very optimistic because it, it basically opens up uh, to just a, a lot of creative fields. So definitely, definitely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So we will end with, you know, maybe with the title of your book, which called Atchalta, that uh, you know you you translate it to the the down of redemption, which is a very complicated and intense word in Jewish theology because it's like the beginning of you right bringing the Messiah back and the, yes. the dreams. But but maybe also we just need to read it, and I read it like that. Atchalta, it's a beginning, and your book for me was a beginning of um, the, theology, Jewish theology that I think. For me, it was so powerful, and I really hope it will be for many others. So, Michael, thank you so much for writing the book and for joining us to the New Books Network. Thank you so much. Thank you. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.